Hello, and welcome back to the Book Club Commune with me, your host, Ivy Polizzi. Today, we're starting a new work by a new author. Controversially, Economic Problems of the Economic Problems of Socialism in the USSR by Joseph Stalin. I know a lot of people aren't, you know, as on board with reading Stalin as other people, so I know this might be, you know, a controversial work to read, but if I'm going to read now, uh, critiques of this, I need to read this first. And I think it, I think it's important to have both sides of the story there, just because Mao, the era of Mao's critique is during the Shino-Soviet split, so, you know, there's lots of controversies on Mao's end, and lots of controversies on Stalin's end, that need to be resolved by reading both of them. Um, regardless, uh, this is going to be chapter one and chapter two of this work, and uh, there's ten chapters in total and a little bit after, so we're probably going to stick with doing two chapters an episode just so that it's nice and condensed. Um, so I hope you enjoy uh, the first two chapters of the Economic Problems of Socialism in the USSR. To the participants in the economic discussion, I have received all the materials on the economic discussion arranged to assess the draft textbook on political economy. The material received includes the proposals for the improvement on the of the draft textbook on the political economy, proposals for the elimination of mistakes and inaccuracies in the draft, and the memorandum on disputed issues. On all these materials, as well as the draft textbook, I consider it necessary to make the following remarks. Chapter 1. The character of economic laws under socialism. Some comrades deny the objective character of the laws of science, and the laws of political economy particularly. They deny that the laws of political economy reflect the law-governed processes which operate independently of the will of man. They believe that in the view of, specific, of the specific role assigned to the Soviet state by history, the Soviet state and its leaders can abolish law, existing laws of political economy and conform, create, new laws. These comrades are profoundly mistaken. It is evident that they confuse laws of science, which, can, which reflect objective processes in nature of society, processes which take place independently of the will of man, with the laws which are issued by governments, which are made by the will of man, and which have only judicial value, validity, but they must not be confused. Marxism regards the laws of science, whether they be laws of natural science or laws of political economy, as the reflection of objective processes, which take place independently of the will of man. Man may discover these laws, get to know them, study them, reckon with them in his activities, and utilize them in the interests of society, but he cannot change or abolish them. Still, less, came, less can he form or create new laws of science. Does this mean, for instance, that the results of the action of the laws of nature, the result of the action of the forces of nature, are generally inadvertible, and that the destruction, destructive action of the forces of nature always and everywhere proceeds with an elemental and inexorable power that does not yield to the influence of man? No, it does not. Leaving aside astronomical, geological, and other similar processes, which man really is powerless to influence, even if he has come to know the laws of their development, in many other cases, man is very far from powerless in the sense of being able to influence the processes of nature. In all such cases, having come to know the laws of nature, reckoning with them, and relying 
on them and intelligently applying and utilizing them, men can restrict their sphere of action and can impart a different direction to the destructive forces of nature and convert them to the use of society. Take one of numerous examples. In olden times, the overflow of big rivers, floods, and the resulting destruction of homes and crops was considered an inadvertible calamity which against which man was powerless. But with the lapse of time and the development of human knowledge, when men had learned to build dams and hydroelectric stations, it became possible to protect society from the calamity of flood, which had formerly seemed inadvertible. More, man learned to curb the destructive forces of nature, to harness them, so to speak, to convert the force of water to this use of society, and to utilize it for the irrigation of fields and the generation of power. Does this mean that man has thereby abolished laws of nature, laws of science, and has created new laws of nature, new laws of science? No, it does not. The fact is that all this procedure of averting the action of the destructive forces of water and utilizing them in his interest of society takes place without any violation, alteration, or abolition of scientific laws or the creation of new scientific laws. On the contrary, all this procedure is effected in precise conformity with the laws of nature and the laws of science, since any violation, even the slightest, of the laws of nature would only upset matters and render the procedure futile. The same must be said of the laws of economic development, the laws of political economy, whether in the period of capitalism or in the period of socialism. Here too, the laws of economic development, as in the case of natural science, are objective laws, reflecting processes of economic development, which take place independently of the will of man. Man may discover these laws, get to know them, and relying upon them, utilize them in the interests of society, impart a different direction to the destruction, destructive action of some of the laws, restrict their sphere of action, and allow full, fuller scope of other laws that are forcing their way to the forefront, but he cannot destroy them or create new economic laws. One of the distinguishing features of political economy is that its laws, unlike those of natural science, are impermanent that they, or at least the majority of them, operate for a definite historical period, after which they give place to new laws. However, these laws are not abolished but lose their validity, owing to the new economic conditions and depart from the scene in order to give place to new laws, laws which are not created by the will of man but will ar which arise from the new economic conditions. Reference is made to Engels' anti-During, to his formula, which says that, with the abolition of capitalism and the socialization of the means of production, man will obtain control of his means of production, that he will set free from the yoke of social and economic relations and become the master of his social life. Ingalls calls this freedom appreciation of necessity. And what can this appreciation of necessity mean? It means that having come to know objective laws, necessity, man will apply them with full consciousness in the interests of society. That is why Ingle says in the same book, the laws of his own social action, hitherto standing face to face with man as, saying, as laws of nature foreign to and dominating him, will then be used with full understanding and so mastered by him. As we see, Ingle's formula does not speak at all in favor of those who think that under socialism existing economic laws can be abolished and new ones created. On the contrary, it demands not the abolition, but the understanding of economic laws and their intelligent application. It is said that the economic laws are elemental in character, that their action is inadvertible, and that society is powerless against them. That is not true. It is making a fetish of laws, and oneself the slave of laws. 
It has been demonstrated that society is not powerless against laws, that, having come to know economic laws and relying upon them, society can restrict their act- their sphere of action, utilize them in the interest of society, and harness them, just as in the case of the forces of nature and their laws. Just as in the case of the overflowing of bi- overflow of big rivers cited in the illustration above. Reference is made to the specific role of the Soviet government in building socialism, which allegedly enables it to abolish existing laws of economic development and to form new ones. That is also untrue. The specific role of the Soviet government was due to two circumstances. First, that which Soviet government had to do was not to replace one form of exploitation by another, as was the case in early revolutions, but to abolish exploitation altogether. Second, in that view of the absence in the country of any ready-made rudiments of a socialist economy, it had to create new socialist forms of economy, starting from scratch, so to speak. That was undoubtedly a difficult, complex, and unprecedented task. Nevertheless, the Soviet government accomplished this task with credit, but it accomplished it not only not because it supposedly destroyed the existing economic laws and formed new ones, but only because it relied on the economic law that the relations of production must necessarily conform with the character of the productive forces. The productive forces of our country, especially in industry, were social in character. The form of ownership, on the other hand, was private, capitalistic, relying on the economic law that the relations of production must necessarily conform with the character of the productive forces. The Soviet government socialized the means of production and made them the property of the whole people and thereby abolished the exploiting system and created socialist forms of economy. Had it not been for this law, the Soviet government not relied upon it, could not have accomplished its mission. The economic law that the relations of production must necessarily conform with the character of productive forces has long been forcing its way to the forefront of the, in the capitalist countries. If it has failed so far as to force its way into the open, it is because it is encountering powerful resistance on the part of the obsolete forces of society. Here we have another distinguishing feature of economic laws. Unlike the laws of natural science, where the discovery and application of a new law proceeds more or less smoothly, the discovery and application of a new law in the economic field, affecting as it does the interest of obsolete forces of society, meets with the powerful resistance on their part. A force, a social force, capable of overcoming this resistance is therefore necessary. In our country, such a force was the alliance of the working class and the peasantry, who represented the overwhelming majority of society. There is no such force yet in other capitalist countries. This explains the secret why the Soviet government was able to smash the old forces of society, and why in our country, the economic law and the relations of production must necessarily conform with the character of the productive forces received in full scope. It is said that the necessity for balanced, proportionate development of our national economy in our country enables the Soviet government to abolish existing economic laws and to create new ones. That is absolutely untrue. Our yearly and five-yearly plans must not be confused with the objective economic law of balanced, proportionate development of the national economy.
The law of balanced development of the national economy arose in opposition to the law of competition and anarchy of production under capitalism. It arose from the socialization of the means of production after the law of competition and anarchy of production had lost its validity. It became operative because a socialist economy can be conducted only on the basis of the economic law of balanced development of the national economy. That means that the law of balanced development of the national economy makes it possible for our planning bodies to plan social production correctly, but possibility must not be confused with actuality. They are two different things. In order to turn the possibility into actuality, it is necessary to study this economic law, to master it, to learn to apply it with the full understanding, and to compile such plans as fully reflect the requirements of this law. It cannot be said that the requirements of this economic law are fully reflected by our yearly and five-yearly plans. It is said that some of the economic laws operating in our country under socialism, including the law of value, have been transformed, or even radically transformed, on the basis of planned economy. That is likewise untrue. Laws cannot be transformed, still less radically transformed. If they can be transformed, then they can be abolished and replaced by other laws. The thesis that laws can be transformed is a relic of the incorrect formula that laws can be abolished or formed. Although the formula that economic laws can be transformed has already been current in our country for a long time, it must be abandoned for the sake of accuracy. The sphere of action of this or that economic law may be restricted. Its destructive action, that is, of course, if it is liable to be destructive, may be averted but it cannot be transformed or abolished. Consequentially, when we are speaking of subjugating natural forces or economic forces, of dominating them, etc., this does not mean that man can abolish or form scientific laws. On the contrary, it only means that man can discover laws, get to know them, and master them, learn to apply them with full understanding, utilize them in the interests of society, and thus subjugate them, secure mastery over them. Hence, the laws of political economy under socialism are objective laws, which reflect the fact that the process of economic life are gov law-governed and operate independently of our will. People who deny this postulate are in point of, of fact denying science, and by denying science, they are denying all possibility of prognostication and consequentially are denying the possibility of directing economic activity. It may be said that all of this is correct and generally known but that there is nothing new in it, and that is, it is therefore not worth spending time reiterating generally known truths. Of course, there, is really, there really is nothing new in this, but it would be a mistake to think that it is not worth spending time reiterating certain truths that are well known to us. In fact, the fact is that we, the leading corps, are joined every year by thousands of new and young forces who are ardently desirous of assisting us and ardently desirous of proving their worth, but who do not possess an adequate Marxist education, are unfamiliar with many truths that are well known to us, and are therefore compelled to grope in the darkness. They are staggered by the colossal achievements of the Soviet government, and they are dazzled by the extraordinary successes of the Soviet system. And they begin to imagine that the Soviet government can do anything and that nothing is beyond it. That it can abolish scientific laws and even form new ones. What are we to do with these comrades? How are we to educate them in Marxism-Leninism? I think that systematic reiteration and patient explanation of so-called generally known truths is one of the best methods in educating these comrades in Marxism. End of chapter one. Chapter two. Commodity Production Under Socialism
Certain comrades affirmed that the party acted wrongly in preserving commodity production after it had assumed power and nationalized the means of production in our country. They consider that the party should have banished commodity production there and then. In this connection, connection, they cite Ingalls, who says, Without seizing the means of production by society, production of commodities is done away with, and simultaneously the mastery of production over the producer. These comrades are profoundly mistaken. Let us examine Engels' formula. Engels' formula cannot be considered fully clear and precise because it does not indicate whether it is referring to the seizure of by society of all or only part of the means of production. That is, whether all or only part of the means of production are converted into public property. Hence, this formula of Engels may be understood either way. Elsewhere in Anti-During, Engels speaks of mastering all the means of production. Of, take, of taking possession of all means of production. Hence, in this formula, Engels has in mind the nationalization not of part, but of all the means of production. That is, the conversion into public property of the means of production, not only of industry, but also of agriculture. It follows from this that Engels has in mind countries where capitalism and the concentration of production has advanced far enough in both the industry and in agriculture to permit the expropriation of all the means of production in a country and their conversion into public property. Engels consequentially considers that in such countries, parallel with the socialization of all, he means of all the the means of production, commodity production, should be put an, an end to. And that, of course, is correct. There's only one such country at the close of the last century when Anti-During was published, Britain. There, the development of capitalism and the concentration of production in both in industry and in agriculture had reached such a point where it would have been possible, in the event of the assumption of power by the proletariat, to convert all of the country's means of production into public property and to put an end to commodity production. I leave aside this instance the question of the importance of foreign trade to Britain and the vast part it plays in her national economy. I think that only after an investigation of this question can it be finally decided what would be the future of commodity production in Britain after the proletariat had assumed power and all the means of production had been nationalized. However, not only at the close of the last century, but today too, no country has attained such a degree of development of capitalism and concentration of production and agriculture as is to be observed in Britain. As to the other countries, notwithstanding the development of capitalism in the countryside, they still have a fairly numerous class of small and medium rural peasant rural owner producers, whose future would have to be decided if the proletariat should assume power. But here is a question. What are the proletariat and the party to do in countries, ours being case in point, where the conditions are favorable for the assumption of power by the proletariat and the overthrow of capitalism, where capitalism has so concentrated the means of production and industry that they may be expropriated and made the property of society, but where agriculture, notwithstanding the growth of capitalism, is divided up among numerous small and medium owner producers, to such an extent as to make it impossible to consider the expropriation of these producers. To this question, Engels' formula does not furnish an answer. Incidentally, it was not supposed to furnish an answer, since its formula arose from another question, namely, what should be the fate of commodity production after all the means of production had been socialized? And so, what is to be done if not all, but only part of the means of production had been socialized, yet the conditions are favorable for the assumption of power by the proletariat? Should the proletariat assume power, and should commodity production be abolished immediately thereafter? 
We cannot, of course, regard it as an answer of the opinion of certain half-baked Marxists who believe that under such conditions, the thing to do is to refrain from taking power and to wait until capitalism has succeeded in ruining the millions of small and medium producers and converting them into farm laborers and in concentrating the means of production in agriculture. And only after this would it be possible to consider the assumption of power by the proletariat and the socialization of all the means of production. Naturally, this is a solution which Marxists cannot accept if they do not want to disgrace themselves completely. Nor can we regard as an answer the opinion of other half-baked Marxists who think that the thing to do would be to assume power and to appropriate the rural, small, and medium producers and to socialize their means of production. Marxists cannot accept this senseless and criminal course either because it would destroy all chances of victory for the proletarian revolution and would throw the, the peasantry into the camp of the enemies of the proletariat for a long time. The answer to this question was given by Lenin in his writings, The Tax in Kind, and in his celebrated Cooperative Plan. Lenin's answers may be briefly summed up as follows. A. Favorable conditions for the assumption of power should not be missed. The proletariat should assume power without waiting until capitalism has succeeded in ruining the millions of small and medium individual producers. B. The means of production industry should be expropriated and converted into public property. C. As to the small and medium individual producers, they should be gradually united in producers' cooperatives, i.e., the large agricultural enterprises, collective farms. D. Industry should be developed to the utmost, and the collective farms should be placed in the modern technical basis of large-scale production, not expropriating them, but on the contrary, generously supplying them with first-class tractors and other machines. E. In order to ensure an economic bond between the town and country, between industry and agriculture, commodity production, exchange through purchase and sale, should be preserved for a certain period, it being the form of economic tie with the town which is alone acceptable to the peasants, and Soviet trade, state, cooperative, and collective farm should develop to, full, to the full and the capitalists of all types and descriptions ousted from trading activity. The history of socialist construction in our country has shown that this path of development, mapped out by Lenin, has fully justified itself. There could be no doubt that in the case of all capitalist countries with the more or less numerous class of small and medium producers, this path of development is the only possible and expedient one for the victory of socialism. It is said that commodity production must lead, is bound to lead, to capitalism all the same under all conditions. That is not true. Not always and not under all conditions. Commodity production must be identified with capitalist production. They are two different things. Capitalist production is the highest form of commodity production. Commodity production leads only to capitalism only if there is private ownership of the means of production, if labor power appears in the market as a commodity which can be bought by the capitalist and exploited in the process of production, and if, consequentially, the system of exploitation of wage workers by capitalists exists in the country. Capitalist producers, capitalist production even, begins with the means of production are concentrated in private hands, and when the workers are bereft of means of production and are compelled to sell their labor power as a commodity, without this there is no such thing as capitalist production. Well, and what is to be done if the conditions for the conversion of commodity production into capitalist production do not exist, if the means of production are no longer private but socialist property, if the system of wage labor no longer exists and labor power is no longer a commodity, and if the system of exploitation has been long abolished? It can be considered then that the commodity production will lead to capitalism all the same? No, it cannot.
Yet ours is precisely such a society, a society where private ownership of the means of production, a system of wage labor, and the system of exploitation have long ceased to exist. Commodity production must not be regarded as something sufficient unto itself, something independent of the surrounding economic conditions. Commodity production is older than capitalist production. It existed in slave societies and served it, but did not lead to capitalism. It existed in feudal society and served it. Yet, although it prepared some of the conditions for capitalist production, it did not lead to capitalism. Why then, one asks, cannot commodity production similarly serve our socialist society for a certain period without leading to capitalism, bearing in mind that in our country commodity production is not so boundless and all-embracing as it is under capitalist conditions, being confined within strict bounds thanks to such decisive economic conditions as social ownership of the means of production and the abol abolition of the system of wage labor and the elimination of the system of exploitation. It is said that since the domination of social ownership and the means of production has been established in our country and the system of wage labor and exploitation has been abolished, commodity production has lost all meaning and therefore should be done away with. That is also untrue. Today there are two basic forms of socialist production in our country, state or publicly owned production and collective farm production, which cannot be said to be publicly owned. And the state enterprises, the means of production, and the production product of production are national property. In the collective farms, although the means of production, lands and machines, do belong to the state, the product of production is the property of the different collective farms, since the labor, as well as the seed, is their own, while the land, which has been turned over to the collective farms in perpetual tenure, is used by them virtually as their own property, in spite of the fact that they cannot sell, buy, lease, or mortgage it. The effect of this is that the state disposes only of the product of the of the state enterprises, while this product of the collective farms, being their property, is disposed of only by them. But the collective farms are unwilling to alienate their product except in the form of commodities, in exchange for which they desire to receive the commodities they need. At present, the collective farms will not recognize any other economic relation with the town except the commodity relation, exchanged through purchase and sale. Because of this, commodity production and trade are as a, much a necessity with us today as they were, say, 30 years ago, when Lenin spoke of the necessity of developing trade to the utmost. Of course, when instead of the two basic production sectors and the state sector and the collective farm sector, there will only there will be only one all-embracing production sector, when the right to dispose of the consumer good produced in the country commodity circulation with its money economy will disappear as being an unnecessary element in the national economy. But so long as this is not the case, so long as the two basic production sectors remain, commodity production and commodity circulation must remain in force as a necessary and very useful element of in our system of national economy. How the formation of a single and united sector will come about, whether by simply swallowing up of all the collective farm sector by the state sector, which is hardly likely because that would be looked upon as the expropriation of the collective farms, or by setting up of a single national economic body comprising representatives of state industry and of the collective farms, with the right at first to keep account of all consumer product in the country, and eventually also to distribute it by way, say, of product exchange, is a special question which requires a separate discussion. Consequentially, our commodity production is not of the ordinary type. But it is a special kind of commodity production, commodity production without capitalists, which is concerned mainly with the goods of associated socialist producers.
the state of the collect the state the collective farms the cooperatives the sphere of action of which is confined to the items of personal consumption which obviously cannot possibly develop into capitalist production and which together with its money economy, is designed to serve the development and consolidation of socialist production. Absolutely mistaken, therefore, are those comrades who allege that since socialist society is not abolished commodity forms of production, we are bound to have re the reappearance of the economic categories characteristic of capitalism. Labor power is a commodity, surplus value, capital, capitalist profit, the average rate of profit, etc. These comrades confuse commodity production with capitalist production and believe that once there is commodity production, there must also be capitalist production. They do not realize that our commodity production radically differs from commodity production under capitalism. Further, I think we must also discard certain other concepts taken from Marx's capital, where Marx was concerned with the analysis of capitalism and artificially applied it to our socialist relations. I am referring to such concepts, among others, as necessary and surplus labor, necessary and surplus product, necessary and surplus time. Marx analyzed capitalism in order to eludicate the source of exploitation of the working class, surplus value, and to arm the working class, which was bereft of the means of production, with an intellectual weapon for the overthrow of capitalism. It is natural that Marx used concepts, categories, which fully corresponded to capitalist relations, but it is strange, to say the least, to use these concepts now, when the working class is not only, which is not only not bereft of the power uh, and means of production, but on the contrary, is in position of power and controls the means of production. Talk of labor power being a commodity and hiring of workers sounds rather absurd now under our system. As so the working class, which possesses the means of production, hires itself and sells its labor power to itself. It is just as strange to speak now of necessary and surplus labor, as though under our conditions, the labor and contributed by the workers to society for the extension of production, the promotion of education and public health, the organization of defense, etc., is not just as necessary to the working class now in power as the labor expended to supply the personal needs of the worker and his family. It should be remarked that in his critique of the Gotha program, where it is no longer capitalism he is investigating, but, among other things, the first phase of communist society, Marx recognizes labor contributed to society for the extension of production, for education, for public health, for administrative expenses, for building up reserves, etc., to be just as necessary as the labor expended to supply the consumption requirements of the working class. I think our ec economists should put an end to this incongruity between old concepts and the new state of affairs in our socialist country by replacing the old concepts with new ones that correspond to the new situation. We could to tolerate this incongruity for a certain period, but the time has come to put an end to it. End of chapter two. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Book Club Commune. Next episode, we'll be reading chapter three and four of Economic Problems of Socialism in the USSR. Um, I hope you've enjoyed this work. Just know that after this, we'll be going back to Mao. Um, probably I might throw in a very short work of Stalin just because I really enjoy reading Stalin. And if I do, it's going to be dialectical and historical materialism um, because that one's really short and I haven't, I've only read that one once. Um, so just to keep you updated and then after that we'll read Mao, finish up Mao, and then we're going to get into Hammer and Ho. So keep just if you're keeping along and reading along and getting books to go along with this, that's the current trajectory. Uh so yeah. 
anyway, if you've enjoyed this episode, please like and share and send it to any of your comrades. Um, I know people talk about this work a lot, but I don't think many people at all have ever read it. So, and lots of people have not read Stalin, which is its own issue. And it's a different kettle of fish there. So whatever. Anyways, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Um, solidarity forever and keep on reading.